Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, we have 3, 2, 1, Go with Cosmo Macero, an interview with Roger Herzog of CDAC, and in two minutes with Tom, we're talking about Crystal Ray Boston, a local high school doing some amazing and innovative work with their students. First up, 3, 2, 1, Go. Let's talk about something important. Hello and welcome to 321 Go on OA On Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. In this installment of 321 Go, the NAACP is bringing its 2020 convention to Boston. We'll talk about this major milestone for a city that has struggled for years with its reputation and history as a place tainted by racism through multiple generations. And... Our own aviation safety expert, Peter Goltz, joins Hugh Drummond to discuss the crisis with Boeing's 737 MAX aircraft, now grounded in the U.S. and 42 other countries following a second catastrophic failure. Finally, Boston's Pine Street Inn and a development partner are planning the largest complex of permanent supportive housing for homeless people in the city's history for a site in Jamaica Plain. It could mean much-needed relief and new options for individuals and families as the city grapples with the problem facing new and different populations every day. Joining me here on 321 Go is Cayenne Isaacson. Hello. The official voice of OA on Air. Let me guess, Cayenne, no complaints? I actually have a complaint. Thank God. Let's have it. My back hurts. You have a real complete. You I threw did. your back out. You I were like, did. you were flat on your back. I was. I came in trying to carry that dog down the stairs. <laughs> He's a cute dog. Let the dog walk himself. You he need to carry the dog. That was the problem. He wouldn't. I'm glad you're recovering. So that's my only complaint. This it's a week. legitimate complaint. <laughs> All right, let's hit it. All right, Cayenne. The NAACP revealed this week that it's 111th national convention. That's going to be in 2020. Now this year, the 110th is in Detroit. 111th National Convention in 2020 will be in the city of Boston. It uh, Look, the city of Boston hosts all kinds of conventions, but this is a real milestone. It's really important and meaningful for the city because of the city's history. What do you think? Uh, I think that's exactly right. It was obviously important enough that Mayor Walsh mentioned this in his State of the City earlier this year, that, that Boston was a finalist and something that he's really proud of. Um, as he has continued in his administration to make a push to really uh, improve racial relations throughout the city. Yeah. Um, I mean, when you think about the history of Boston, it, it actually goes back. You, you probably immediately, if you're a person of a certain age, uh, associate the busing crisis of the 1970s, right? Um, but, but certainly the history of Boston as a city with a not terrific and not perfect racial history goes way back into the slave trade in the 17th and 18th centuries and the, and the violence around busing in the 1970s and um and, and, and quite frankly sort of renewed and re-emerging incidents of racism whether it's someone shouting something in uh, uh, in the stands at Fenway Park or 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 or, or an incident an incident in the streets um, and, 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 and that we've made great strides 
and some of the, the, the historic things that have been done that we scratch our heads about now are, are being addressed, like the Boston Red Sox and the city of Boston acting to Yaki rename Rocky Way, Way uh, recognizing that uh, you know, the great philanthropic legacy of Tommy Yaki also had a flip side of, uh, of, uh, of racial intolerance and things like that. So it's a milestone, and, and it's an important thing, and I think that that's good for the city. It is. And, I, you know, again, going back, Mayor Walsh has said that this is something he really wants to, to work on and, and is addressing. Um, but there's a lot of people that say not enough is being done. Um, and maybe this is surprising that they're coming here. I mean, the Boston Globe did a seven-part spotlight series just on racism in Boston, looking at different industries. Absolutely. Um, and it was hard to deny a lot, of the, a lot of the facts in there on top of these anecdotal stories, too, that are told about people's day-to-day, whether it's Things yelled at them at Fenway Park. We had a, a you know comedian who got a lot of flack for saying Boston was one of the most racist cities uh, that he's come to. So you know it's it's I part mean, of what's not, happening. Not that this is part of the everyday experience that people worry about, but like professional athletes considering that when they are deciding, gee, do I want to play in Boston for the Celtics or the yeah. Red Sox? Those are things that are just part of the reputation. Yeah. Um, just one tiny bit of levity because they have the, the convention's coming to Boston, but they haven't announced where. Yep. I mean, can we assume at least the massive convention center is in the running? I, one would hope so. <laughs> the fact that it's in South Boston is, yeah. is, I think, poignant and important because that's kind of a traditional. Yeah. I'm sorry. That that is that is a place from the busing scandal in particular that's been associated with some racial intolerance and has made great strides. Uh, itself as a community, but anyways, logistically, I, I don't know how many places in Boston could I guess could house it, could, it. I guess it could be at the Heinz or wherever yeah. else. But I, I got to assume that Convention Center is in the running for the is end. in the run for the convention. Exactly, I think so. so. All right, <laughs> thanks, Guyan. All right, up next, our own Hugh Drummond talks with our own Peter Golds, aviation safety expert about the crisis with the Boeing 737 MAX. Hugh Drummond here. I'm speaking with our uh, senior vice president in Washington, Peter Goles. Peter is the former head uh, managing director of the NTSB. We're going to be talking about the uh, grounding of the 737 MAX fleet. So, Peter, uh, welcome. And now that the fleet's grounded worldwide, do you think the FAA waited too long? Well, I think they probably did. Uh, Obviously, the pressure was mounting uh, as more and more of the world made the decision to put the plane down. And I was I was was particularly uh, concerned that when the British, the French, the Germans and the Singaporeans all all made the same decision uh, that the FAA was going to have to follow suit. Uh, it was a matter of public trust. It was a matter of uh, of public trust in the safety uh, of air travel. And uh, I think the FAA waited uh, probably 12 hours too long. So what happens now? What, what happens next? There, there's an investigation into the accident, but there's also kind of an ex- um, examination of w- what a fix could be. Yeah, I think I think there's two things going on. Obviously, uh, the attention is going to be focused on the French investigative agency, the BEA, which has 
voice recorder and the data recorder, and they will be downloading information from uh, from those devices uh, shortly. The second issue is uh, what is the FAA going to do uh, with Boeing uh, for a software fix on this, uh, what they call the MCAS system. And uh, I think it's going to involve a software fix and the training fix. One of the biggest problems I think Boeing faced on this was when they introduced the 737 MAX, part of the selling point was uh, that pilots could be upgraded into the cockpit with minimal training, that it was essentially a 737 next gen. And uh, U.S. pilots said they got about an hour's worth of iPad training, uh, and then and then they were moved into the cockpit. Hmm. Uh, and I think more training needs to be done. So uh, how long could this take? How long could that fleet stay down? I'm afraid it could stay down for a number of months, uh, which is going to you know be somewhat disruptive. To, to air travel for Southwest and American. Uh, the last time uh, an aircraft was grounded, it was the 787 Dreamliner. It was down for three months uh, as they fixed the lithium battery problem. Uh, when you're dealing with a software fix and something as uh, high profile as this worldwide, I'm afraid it could take uh, upwards of six months. So this this is the uh, this brand new plane, pride of of Boeing's commercial uh, aircraft business. Um, what's this mean for that business? And and you know, what does this mean for consumers and and their confidence in in you know aviation going forward? Well, I think I think two things are going to happen. One is Boeing certainly is going to take a hit uh, to the bottom line uh, as. First of all, carriers who have already been flying the 737 MAX are going to ask uh, Boeing to reimburse them for the cost of putting the plane on the ground. Uh, Norwegian Airways has already initiated uh, action on that front. Secondly, uh, Boeing has upwards of 5,000 planes on orders. Indonesian uh, Air and Lion Air are already questioning uh, the the orders and considering canceling them. I think that's going to be a problem for Boeing. And the way they're going to solve that problem is by lowering the price and adjusting financially uh, what carriers uh, uh, pay for the aircraft and putting other sweeteners into the deals to keep their order book filled. Uh, So I think Boeing's going to face... you know, a testing time over the next uh, year or two. And uh, I think consumers uh, are going to face uh, a little bit of disruption over the next uh, uh, you know, few weeks as the carriers adjust their schedule. And then uh, it really depends uh, on how Boeing and the FAA reintroduce the 737 MAX to the public if the public accepts that it is a safe aircraft. Well, I know you're in demand these days uh, for a lot of interviews, so I have one last question, though. Um, automation, it's creeping into our lives everywhere. Is there, is there too much automation? Well, there is, there is a growing concern in the aviation community 
community that uh, the automated cockpit, uh, which really uh, is taking the flying out of the hands of the pilot, uh, may have gone too far, and that fundamental piloting skills are being eroded as uh, as flight crews, uh, you know, put the plane on autopilot and sit back. Uh, I think that's going to be a debate in which uh, pilots are going to weigh in. They want to fly more, uh, and I think the public probably wants their pilots to have the hand on the wheel and, more importantly, to have a complete understanding of how their automated systems act and what the logic, uh, what is the type of logic that the automated systems use. Well, Peter, you're really busy these days, especially, and thanks for taking time to be with us. My pleasure, Hugh. All right, Cayenne, finally, homelessness in Boston. Uh, Big news this week, the Pine Street Inn and a development partner that specializes in affordable housing getting together to propose and develop a 225-unit complex of permanent supportive housing for homeless persons on Washington Street in Jamaica, in the Jamaica Plain neighborhood of Boston. Um, that's that's a, a, a big chunk of housing stock that's a, that, would be, that would be available for homeless persons to ad, uh, help address this crisis. Um, you know a tremendous amount from client work and other work and social services that you've done about homelessness in Boston. What do you think about this? Some thoughts on it, as well as just give us some parameters around what we're dealing with every day uh, in Boston and trying to address homelessness. Yeah, so Pine Street Inn um, is obviously in- incredibly well-known, does amazing work around uh, addressing and, and helping support homelessness, uh, particularly homeless individuals in the city. They are one of 40-plus organizations that uh, form what's called the Coalition for Homeless Individuals, which we work with. Um, Great organization, 40-plus organizations throughout the state uh, are part of this group that really are working towards how we better support uh, homeless individuals, homeless men and women. For anyone that doesn't know, actually, uh, here in Massachusetts, homelessness is funded in uh, separate line items based on whether you're a homeless family or a homeless individual. Yep. Um, the little tidbit not a lot of people are aware of. So, you know, what does that mean? That means these are adult men and women uh, who are, are homeless, who are struggling. And there's really been this push towards, you know, it's not just about get them in, shelter them for the night, give them a hot meal and send them on their way. How do organizations really wrap services around them and treat and treat them for what's all usually the underlying reasons a person is, is homeless. Um, and that means job training. That means finding housing. Uh, a lot of programs that we're seeing lately, and you'll notice in this 225-unit uh, proposal, is it's not just for homeless individuals. It's also you know low market, people who, who might have jobs, but they're not making a lot of money. Yeah. Um, and that's really important because part of getting out of it is then being sustained. Sure. Um, and how do you s- prevent people from being back at the front door of homelessness? You find them permanent housing. Yeah. You, met, you mentioned the, dis- the distinction between individuals and families. And I got to imagine that, a, that once you have a family, whether it's a, you know, a, a family of t- 
two, a, a single mother and a child, or a family of more than that, it has to exponentially complicate the, the situation because it's a chick, it's a, it's a rock and a hard place. How do you get training and get this person in a position where they can try to support their family when, you know, they've got a child that might be having, having to go to school or whatever it might be? That must make things much more difficult. Yeah, and you know the 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 how they are funded in these two different line items kind of looks at that too of what homeless individuals need, so adult men and women who who don't have children, um, versus what a homeless family might need for supportive services. Uh, they're very similar until they're not, if that makes sense. So, um, yeah, daycare thing, you know, the uh, getting your kid in school. If you're if you're put into housing and then you suddenly have to move what does that mean for your child if you have to take them out of school you know all of those are are very complicated so homeless individuals tend to look more at the supportive services aren't looking at that so much um workforce training substance abuse treatment mental health treatment um you know and and housing and how do you get these people housed and not on a temporary basis but on a permanent basis and really give them the foundation they need to continue to stay out of homelessness, which is the ultimate goal, is to end homelessness. Um, yeah. And in the city particularly, um, you know, Mayor Walsh, again, talking about Mayor Walsh, has put a really big push about ending chronic homelessness and affordable housing units and units like this that are going to uh, go to homeless individuals and is, you know, certainly a step in the right direction. But it's going to cost a lot of money, so people sure. people got to <laughs> pay attention. It sure is. All right, but well, yeah. well needed. Yeah, I mean, any 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 population at risk, the support system, the infrastructure, uh, it, it it needs both those things. This this proposal, Pine Street Inn uh, and Jamaica Plan, would certainly uh, be a significant addition to that. All yeah. right, Cayenne, thanks a lot. All right, that's going to do it for this week's edition of Three, Two, One, Go. Our program is recorded in Studio One Hundred and Eight, just off the historic Tip O'Neill Room at our building in the heart of Government Center, Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Macera. That's it for 321 Go. Up next, an interview with Roger Herzog of CDAC. Hello, this is Suzanne Morris, and I am a vice president at O'Neill & Associates. I'm here today with Roger Herzog, who is the executive director of the Community Economic Development Assistance Corporation, which is also known as CDAC. CDAC is a community development financial institution that provides early stage financing and technical assistance to community-based and other nonprofit organizations engaged in effective community development in Massachusetts. Over the past 40 years, CDEC has committed more than $400 million in pre-development funds, which has helped to create more than 50,000 units of affordable housing in the Commonwealth, and has managed another $490 million in state housing bond resources. And its affiliated organization, the Children's Investment Fund, has committed more than $55 million to child care providers, which has supported the improvement of more than 30,000 child care slots in the Commonwealth. CDAC will be celebrating its 40th anniversary at, at an event in March, and Roger is here today to talk a bit more about what CDAC does and why it's so important to community development. So welcome, Roger. 
Thank you, Suzanne. It's great to be here. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so you are celebrating your 40th anniversary this month, and you're honoring Mel King, former state representative. Um, explain the history of CDAC's creation and what Mel's role was in, in that. Well, we are thrilled to be able to honor Mel King um, at this 40th anniversary event. Mel, of course, is uh, a, a storied leader in Boston um, and was really, uh, through his community activism and leadership, one of the leading voices um, that called for community control over development in Boston's neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And this um, was coming up uh, primarily uh, around uh, a highway construction project that was being planned in the 1960s. And this was going to be an inner belt highway that was um, planned to run through the southwest um, area of the city, now known as the Southwest Corridor. And the state actually went and took um, large amounts of land by eminent domain for this highway construction project. Um, and of course, uh, this was the start of a large um, and well, uh, very effective community organizing to stop the highway project since um, residents in these neighborhoods that were being impacted felt like having a major expressway running right through the middle of their neighborhood was going to really destroy the fabric of the neighborhood. And this um, advocacy was effective and ultimately led to uh, Governor Sargent canceling the plan for the highway in the early 1970s and, um, and thus was being born a movement of community residents who were vested in their neighborhoods and wanted to have a voice in how their neighborhoods got redeveloped. And Mel was the leading um, voice in, in this effort. So while this was happening, Mel was also um, affiliated with the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in their urban planning department. Um, and Mel gathered a group of urban planners and community activists to help think about the resources that community residents would need in order to successfully redevelop their neighborhoods. Um, and this became known as the Wednesday morning breakfast group. Evidently, Mel would uh, prepare the breakfasts um, and have vibrant discussions with this group. And what came out of it, um, among other things, was an idea of a state created technical assistance organization that could help nonprofits uh, get resources and, um, as Mel would say, control the redevelopment of their neighborhood. And that really led to Mel as a state representative representing um, the South End neighborhood, um, uh, sponsoring and filing legislation, chapter 40H as we now refer to it, um, that created the Community Economic Development Assistance Corporation. And that legislation passed in 1978, which was really the, the birth of our organization. And um, 
what what an honor it is to be able to celebrate 40 years of our work with the nonprofit community development sector in Massachusetts and to honor Mel um, at the same time. Absolutely. So um, I think the easiest way to talk about CDAC's work and how you work is through these actual some of these actual projects that you've worked on. Um, okay, so the next one is Live 155, 155 in Northampton. Um, that is a really interesting project in um, the Western Mass community of Northampton. Um, Live 155 is the name of a new development project um, several blocks from the heart of downtown Northampton. And it was the site of a former lodging house, single room occupancy for low income individuals that um, was a highly distressed property. There was very poor private management of the building. Um, the, the city was very concerned, it was a frequent source of police um, involvement and activity. And the city really wanted to bring in new um, ownership and management of this property. At the same time, they wanted to see that the needs of low-income single individuals were being met. So they reached out to a nonprofit, um, a very prominent nonprofit in Western Mass known as Wayfinders. And Wayfinders came up with a very innovative plan um, tearing down the old lodging house and developing a mixed-use project with commercial space along the ground floor, which um, meets the, the neighborhood need, again, as you approach downtown Northampton, and residential use up above. Um, it's supportive housing, so there are um, uh, an intense array of support services for the individuals living there, some of whom are formerly homeless. Um, and CDAC provided uh, pre-development and um, acquisition financing to Wayfinders that supported their efforts to make this happen. At the same time that this was going on, another prominent project directly across the street, the old Northampton Lumber Yard, became available. And a sister community development organization, Valley CDC, was able to acquire the Lumber Yard site with CDAC financing. So we had these two projects um, leading into downtown neighborhood getting redeveloped into pretty significant scale and density affordable housing um, for the community. And the, the result of these two projects was a pretty significant impact on what the community calls the gateway into Northampton. Um, they were able to also uh, attract infrastructure um, grants from the state to support this um, development. And um, it's uh, now Live 155 has opened and is a successful new addition to Northampton. The Lumberyard Apartments is well along in construction and should be opening later in 2019. And what really strikes me about these two efforts is that the nonprofit community development sector in Massachusetts has grown a lot more sophisticated mm -hmm. over the last 40 years as it has evolved. And it's able to take on larger and more complicated development projects. Yeah. This is a lot different than in the early days of CDAC where nonprofits were doing 
triple-deckers and six-family buildings. Now we're doing hundreds of units in new development. And we've seen that kind of large-scale transformative project happening in other communities across the state. We see it in Jackson Square in uh, uh, Boston, right in the border of Jamaica Plain and Roxbury. Um, Ironically, the site of some of those early highway battles that took place in the 60s. We see it in Worcester, um, uh, in a neighborhood directly adjacent to Clark University. In in both of those situations, like in Northampton, we had um, experienced nonprofit developers who took on large-scale development and have um, help to really revitalize and redevelop, them and redevelop important neighborhoods. Well, Roger Herzog, thank you very much. Thank you, and thanks to O'Neill for uh, giving us this opportunity. To Happy talk to have us. you yeah. in. Thanks to Roger for joining us. If you want to hear more from him, check out our SoundCloud page or our own O'Neill & Associates website. Next up, Two Minutes with Tom. Hello, Tom. Hi, Cayenne. How are you? Good. Welcome back to two minutes or four and a half minutes with Tom. <laughs> no. OA on air. How <laughs> oh, I love it. It's always nice to have you here yeah, in the studio you. with us. Uh, so I thought that we'd talk about something uh, a little bit different, and but very personal to you and something you've been invested in. Yesterday, coming back from a meeting, um, colleagues and I were in a ride share that I won't name. There's no endorsements on OA on air. And we noticed that the there was a Cristo Ray Boston folder in the seat of the driver's car. We asked him, you know, hey, how do you have this? Did someone leave this year? How is it? And he said, my daughter goes to Cristo Ray Boston, just started as a freshman, which got us into talking about all the work that we here at O'Neill & Associates do with Cristo Ray and obviously your experience, uh, former chair of the board. And we just thought it was a fun way to talk a little bit about Cristo Ray, something that obviously means so much to you and to our company, really. Cristo Ray is... A fabulous school. It's a high school. It's a college prep school. It's uh, made up of, of students who come from within the greater Boston area. Um, all kids at risk, all from the core center city. Um, they all come from below the poverty level. Uh, they do four days of, of uh, high school work, college prep, and one day of work. So we have any number of of employers sponsoring our kids as interns, our students as interns, uh, where each student will work one day a week, but one week a month for the entirety of the school year. And so it's a work-study program, and the work that the the students do um, really constitutes an opportunity for us to raise from the employer base that hires them as interns to to defray 70% of the cost of education. So it's... uh, we were the second Cristo Rey High School in the country. Now there are 34. There are maybe 20,000 students across the country going to Cristo Rey schools. So what sets us apart is the fact that 100%, seven years in a row now, eight years in a row now, 100% of our students graduating go to a four-year college or university. So parents know that by sending their kids to Cristo Rey, they have an opportunity to leg up they're going to work in a, in a workplace one day a week, one week a month. They're going to get uh, all the college preparation that they're going to need in order to take the college boards to get into a four-year school. Um, but they know if they make it through the four years, 
their their cha- their child their, their their son or daughter is going to go to a four year college or university. Which I mean, how many high schools can say that? There's there's not many. I don't know any that, that can, can say, say it outside of us. And <laughs> what we're finding is that the retention rate of of our students graduating from Crystal Ray Boston, Crystal Ray High School, Boston, uh, the retention rate in college is as good as any other high school in America, which is, I think, pretty remarkable. And the students are remarkable. So we have uh, four at any given time here right now, um, four days a week. We have a Crystal Ray Boston student, different students that come in and work here. Um, and we should mention, too, that in order for them to do this, that means their four days of school are longer days. Well, what they get is a freshman on Monday, a sophomore on Tuesday, a junior on on one on Wednesday and a senior on Friday on Thursday and on Friday one of the four comes back so that they will work one week during the course of a month mm-hmm. each one of them will um, and, and for that we pay a stipend to the school and these these young students coming in are as responsible as any entrance level job provider yeah. or person you would find anywhere in this country and so they're doing all kinds of work for law firms all kinds of work for hospitals, all kinds of work for auditing companies and accounting firms. Uh, there's there's no limit to where they can work and where where they can where they can apply their you know their capabilities. Could be an it could be an auto uh, an automobile dealership. It could be a real estate office. It could be any number of things. We have our students in like I said, a hundred and I think it's one hundred and forty five places of work. So it's it's pretty impressive. That's great. I might say that I went to the high school. Uh, it was an earlier. It was called it, something else. It was called something else. It was called North Cambridge Catholic High School, um, and it stopped becoming a Central Catholic High School back in, I'd say, twelve years ago, for any number of reasons. And uh, we looked and we found Crystal Ray out in Chicago, loved the concept, and convinced them to come to Boston. We started it over in North Cambridge at North Cambridge Catholic, and it became so widespread and so successful. That we and so we have so many parents clamoring to get their kids in, that the demand was such that we had to find a larger school. And the Archdiocese of Boston uh, was nice enough to kind of direct us to the old St. William School in, in Savin Hill in Dorchester, which is where we reside. We redid the entire school with volunteers for the most part, and uh, it's it's a jewel. I, I invite people to go by Crystal Ray High School in Savin Hill over in Dorchester. It's a fabulous experience. I've never been to the school on site. I've participated in some of our fundraising programs and obviously the interns that we have here. And it really is. It's absolutely incredible. And um, a bit of a call to action is that none of this is made possible without all of these businesses and organizations that are willing to sponsor students and have students come very special. work for them. Because most of the students will, will find themselves in a, in a white working environment which is the first time they've been in a work, white working environment in their life, obviously. But in, in so many of the cases, it's a reverse education because the people working with these students get a sense of who they are, what their life is about, what their hardships have been, what their trials have been, what their experience in school is, and this, this bond that always forms, which is quite remarkable. And, you know, the students come, they tend to stay, and we kept, keep getting them back Mm-hmm. even through college, and we see them now after they've graduated from law school, after they've started a, a job at a, you know, at a law firm. It's fabulous. Yes. So yeah. many of them come back. They all come back. When I first started here, quick story, and then we'll wrap up, um, and I didn't really know much about it. We had a Crystal Ray student, 
and he was telling me about his experience in the program and I remember he said Crystal Ray Boston and sort of the whole program and, and what it meant to him he's like saved my life and I just thought that was that was so remarkable and um, he saw the value in it and we've seen him you know multiple times since but um, it's a great program. People, if they want to get involved, should certainly reach out to Christo Ray and find out how. Yeah, Google it. You, you'll love you'll love it. And if we can, to any listener, if we can persuade you to go over to the, go over to the school, it's an experience you can't turn your back on. It, it's captivating. Yeah. Thanks, Tom. Yeah. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of OA on Air. Now, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, or our own O'Neill & Associates website. Talk to you next week.